There is something about being young and apprehending the incredible magnitude, the power of nature. Hello, and welcome to the Arts of Language podcast with Andrew Poudois, founder of the Institute for Excellence in Writing, or as many like to say, IEW. My name is Julie Walker, and I'm honored to serve Andrew and IEW as the Chief Marketing Officer. Our goal is to equip teachers and teaching parents with methods and materials which will aid them in training their students to become confident and competent communicators and thinkers. So, Andrew, this is the month of November, and technically, in the northern hemisphere, this is still fall. And we love fall in Oklahoma because the weather is actually cool. It's delightful to be outside. There and are most s- of the irritating insects are no longer around. It's true. It's true. And we just had an event here at IEW where we were outside for the whole day, and it was glorious. And I thought, oh, we should do this more often. But then I realized why. It's because it was in the fall, and that's when you want to be outside here in Oklahoma. But today's talk is on nature deficit disorder. And I'm wondering if this talk originated in a state like Oklahoma, where it's really hard to get outside most of the year. <laughs> well, this talk originated when I stole the title of the book talk from the book (laughs) by that same name. But, you know, I have no qualms of stealing stuff as long as give credit where credit is due. And so the author, Richard Louvre, L-O-U-V, no E, L-O-U-V, wrote this marvelous book I came across, gosh, probably pushing 10 years ago now. And it just struck me very powerfully. Hmm. I have told people in various times that I did not grow up in a Christian home. And as a teenager with curiosity in a car and a lot of freedom, too much freedom, I found myself in bookstores Mm. looking in the Eastern religions, New Age sections. And I got very, very much into kind of the New Age stuff Mm -hmm. as a young adult and uh, never really escape that until my mid-30s. And so I I, I kind of hit a point, it was right around my 50th birthday, first grandchild was born. You know, you get kind of philosophical. You figure my life is half over or more. Mm-hmm. And I just became overwhelmed with this sense of gratitude mm. for everything. Mm-hmm. And one of the things I was so grateful for was my faith, And I kind of looked back into my youth and thought, well, you know, what were the things that cultivated the soil of my soul that allowed for the seeds of the gospel to take root and flourish, so to speak? And I identified two things about my childhood that I thought were extraordinarily positive in terms of their influence on my spiritual aptitude, Mm -hmm. if you will, Mm -hmm. Uh, one of them being fairy tales, Mm -hmm. read a lot of fairy tales, and the other one uh, spending a tremendous amount of time 
in nature. Mm -hmm. And so I ended up creating a talk on each of those because I was so fascinated. And of course, we've talked about fairy tales before, and I'm sure we will again. Sure, no doubt. But uh, this idea of time in nature and the extraordinary importance of that and the circumstances of our more modern world that make it less likely, if not more impossible, for most children to have as much time in nature as I was blessed with. Sure. So I I thought this this could be inspiring, you know, for, for younger homeschool moms that are dealing with the the impediments, if you will, to having more time out of doors and you know, I think other people have been thinking those thoughts as well. And there are a few blogger mummies or podcasters that build on this theme. Mm-hmm. But for me, it's it was kind of a personal revelation reading Louv's book and then intersecting some of those ideas with my life. So you said that you were in nature. How, how did this come about? Well, um, one thing is... Uh, our family religion, uh, we were <laughs> culturally Christian with Easter mm-hmm. eggs and Christmas presents. Mm-hmm. But, you know, I think we, I only went into a Christian church maybe two or three times a year for my years up to the age of maybe 14, 13, 14. Mm-hmm. Our family religion was sailing. Oh. Right? My, my father, he was an engineer and he worked to live and he lived to sail. So whenever the weather was good, which was almost always in Southern California, uh-huh. um, we'd be you know, out on our boat on the weekends. That was a normal thing, mm-hmm. either going down and sailing and coming home and then going down Sunday and sailing or puttering around or hanging out at the yacht club or whatever, or we would take trips over to Catalina Island. So a lot of my experience of being out in nature was connected with the water, the ocean, the island, Um, hiking, big rocks, climbing. And then even when I was home, I I had access to space outside. And um, there was a school that I went to in elementary school, but it became an open space. And I I remember, you know, I would climb up on the roof of of the school and just sit there and I'd climb trees. And then there was a canyon and I would explore the canyon and yeah, I'd get home from school, which was when life started, mm-hmm. and then you know I'd be on my bike exploring. And you know, in retrospect, I think, wow, my mother had really a lot of trust and faith to let me basically go out and be completely unsupervised to a degree that she would not even know where I was for several hours. And, of course, she could call you on your cell phone whenever she wanted to right. get Right. I mean, there was zero <laughs> communication. If there had been a disaster, I would have been completely at the mercy of mm-hmm. other people. And, and and I just thought, what a different childhood. Mm-hmm. Even, you know, and, and I would say my wife and I tried to be very liberal in the sense of letting the kids go places and do stuff. Right. But there was never a time when a 12-year-old child was somewhere for two or three or four hours and we didn't know where that was. Right, that, right. that just never happened. And I thought, so 
our children were much more supervised mm-hmm. and controlled and micromanaged than I was as yes, a kid. Yes. And I would guess that'd be true for almost everyone in our generation. Sure. And I suspect I was more supervised than probably my parents were. Oh, interesting. As sure. a kid, or at least my father. And now I look at this generation and I see young people that are even willing to consider putting, you know, some kind of tag mm-hmm. on their kids or in their kids <laughs> so they can track them 24-7. And and, and Louv talks about this in his book, the various reasons that people don't spend more time outside. Mm-hmm. And then he talks about remedies and benefits. Right. So one of the reasons today's parents, and honestly it was us, we didn't get out as often as what you and I did growing up was because parents are too busy to supervise their children. And that was that is culturally necessary today. I mean, I can't imagine my five-year-old granddaughter walking down to the park and just playing there. But that's exactly what I did with my brothers and sisters at five years old. Yes. Louv talks about the fear of strangers and dangers as really being something we have manufactured and it's not real. So if we statistically, and you know, he did this in his book, compare crimes against children, it hasn't significantly increased in this, at least when he wrote the book 10 years ago, compared with 20, 30, 40 years before. What has increased is the reporting oh, sure. of that. Sure. So most parents are hearing a, a horror story that happened in some different yes. state, in some different circumstance, far away, you know, one out of a million. And yet, because that comes into our awareness, it cultivates a fear. Mm-hmm. And so our reaction to fear is to ramp up the protectiveness yes, and the concern and the and the monitoring, sure. if you will. And so, you know, I, I think that's something that would warrant further investigation by some social scientist somewhere. Right. But that was his claim in the book. And I thought that that sounds very reasonable. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, we, we are in no way advocating, hey, son, let my five-year-old granddaughter walk to the park like I did. Oh, my word, no. <laughs> well, if if any of our listeners want to read something that's so outrageous, it's almost not believable, but it's well-documented as being true. There's a, a little book called Bud and Me. Oh, right, yes. Uh, written by the younger of the two Abernathy brothers, who, if I get my memory straight— rode their horses from Oklahoma City to Santa Fe, New Mexico alone when they were seven and five years old in around the turn of the century, early, early 1900s. Their father was the U.S. Marshal for Western Oklahoma Territory. And this book just, it's, it's mind-blowing. It's, it's, the autobiography, and you think, well, how could a five-year-old even remember all that stuff? Which, you know, there may be some parts amplified by imagination, but the historical record mm. exists outside of that in news. And so the first year they rode from Oklahoma City to Santa Fe, their father took the train, met them there, so they had dinner with the governor of New Mexico. 
But that's got to be that's got to take days on horseback. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. And then the next year, they decided that they wanted to ride their horses from Oklahoma to New York so they could meet Theodore Roosevelt. And their father took the train out and met them there. Then they bought cars, and they bought two cars, and they drove back. Now, these kids are like eight and six years old. Obviously, the laws regarding driving cars were not firmly in place at that time. Yes, yes. And I guess, if I remember, their dad's car broke down, their car didn't, so they kept going, and then he had to get his car fixed and all that. And then the third year, some magazine offered them a huge amount of money if they could ride their horses from the Atlantic Ocean to the Pacific Ocean in a certain amount of time. So they did this. And by this time, you know, there was press, there was popular. They'd come into a town. The whole town would come out and meet them. Well, and by virtue of the fact that all the, they got all this publicity, this was still remarkable. Oh, I mean, Very. it's beyond remarkable. It's unbelievable. But it's in this book, and you yeah. can get it. It's called Bud and Me. The Abernathy Brothers. And if you don't want to read the book, just read the Wikipedia article <laughs> on the Abernathy Brothers. Yeah. and uh, Well, that reminds me of the book Little Britches, a great read aloud that I loved reading to my mm. boys and that whole series because that young young boy really just took on family responsibilities way beyond his years. And I just thought how great, what a great role model that was. Well, and we are very encouraged to see and hear stories of children who not only have opportunity and support, but rise to the occasion mm-hmm. of essentially leadership. Yes, exactly. At, at a at a young age, mm-hmm. I don't know that either of the Abernathy brothers grew up to do anything particularly notable or interesting, but their contribution to the lore of what children are capable of certainly is mind blowing. And I won't spend time on all the incredible, unbelievable stories in their life there, but it's it's worth it's worth it. So Andrew, I know that you grew up on a sailboat and I know you know, but perhaps our listeners don't know, but I too grew up sailing. But my sailing began in Minneapolis. Uh-huh. I raced a sailboat with my sister on a lake on in a Minneapolis. Lake, yeah. And so there we are in nature. But it was just my sister and I racing this sailboat and there was a lot of uncertainties because of the wind. And, you know, yes, we flipped our boat on occasion. And I was nine years old racing the sailboat. I wasn't that good, but I was still, my dad trusted us enough to be able to bring the boat and ourselves. Well, the lakes back. there are big and cold. They, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yes. But I, there is something about being young and apprehending the incredible magnitude, the power of nature. Yes. And when it's just you in a little boat and there's these big waves and lots of wind and you have to somehow get yourself to safety, get home, and it taxes you. It uses every erg of your knowledge, your physical strength, your capacity, your and there's no option. You can't really just say hey, you know, I'm feeling uncomfortable right now. Send a helicopter to, you know, pick me. No, it's like you you got to do whatever you got to do to stay alive. And, you know, for most of human history, that's a reality that children have often faced mm-hmm. is you, you have to rise to the occasion to stay alive. 
And I think overcoming that type of, I don't know, gut level fear, if you will, is just so valuable at a young age. Mm-hmm. You know, you you climb a mountain, you don't know that you could. That's an asset in your spirit for your whole life. Mm-hmm. In some cases, a child might specifically say, God helped me through this. Right. But even if there isn't that conscious idea, there's that realization that there was someone looking out for you. Mm-hmm. There was a supernatural assistance. And of course, I think the funny thing is, I think almost every human being, religious or not, has had moments where we've said, okay, God, if you just save me now, I swear I'll be good forever. You know, that kind (laughs) of desperate desire Mm -hmm. for salvation. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, there's so many opportunities in nature. I also went to summer camps. Did you Mm -hmm. go to summer camps? Yes, I did. And I didn't do this well with my children. We, We tried a few times, but... For me, it was like this incredible ritual of mm-hmm. growing up. And I think I started flying alone on an airplane when I was eight or nine mm-hmm. to go to Colorado to go to this three-week summer camp. Oh, wow. I did this every year until I was old enough to be an assistant counselor. And man, if it was cold, it was really cold. Well, you live with it. If it was hot, it was really hot. Well, you live with it. Well, we're going to go climb this 13,500-foot mountain. There's no opting out. <laughs> and I remember one time in particular, we were on a—it was a five-day backpack trip in the Sangre de Cristo mountain range. It was just magnificent. But it's just a bunch of people— mostly kids, Mm -hmm. and whatever you could carry on your back, and that was your survival. And it was going to be a horrible, terrible storm. And the leader of the camp, who I remember very well, one of the few people from my childhood I have a crystal clear memory of, he said, we're going to get home tonight. Instead of staying where we are because this horrible storm is going to come, we're going to go home tonight. It was 10 miles. Oh, wow. And we left in the afternoon. Oh, wow. And I thought I was going to die. I honestly thought that I would collapse on the trail. And he put me right up front, stood right behind me, Mm. and said, we're only going to go as fast as you go. And if you go too slow, I'm going to kick you in the pants. (laughs) And I I was terrified. I mean, I was absolutely terrified. But it was this... It was good. Mm-hmm. You know, I think if someone did that today, you'd look at it as being almost like harsh, abusive, horrible, emotionally scarring. But I tell you, we got home at midnight and I felt on top of the world like yeah. I had done an impossible thing. Right. Yep. So part of it is that kind of stress, mm-hmm. good stress, yep. stress that makes you stronger. You know, if you don't tear muscle fibers, you're not going to get stronger. Mm-hmm. If you don't mm-hmm. tear the limits of what you believe you're capable of, you don't get stronger. And and I think that's, you know, more true as when you're a child. Right. And I wonder how often parents, and I include myself in this, allow our children to experience the edges of their success so that they do fail. Like we want our children to be successful, but they don't know what success is unless they've actually experienced failure, right? Yeah. We're not getting very far into the conference talk no, content, <laughs> so I, I would just at this point say if this subject interests listeners, yeah. go try to listen to the, the whole conference talk sure. we have somewhere on the website, I'm sure, um, because you know I unpack Louv's argument a little more. 
fully without so much of my personal opinion <laughs> stuck in there. But I, I do think it's difficult but important for parents today to really work hard on this mm -hmm. spending time outside. Um, in addition to the fear of strangers and dangers, as Louv says, the other big impediment that we have is an addiction to comfort. Oh, yes. <laughs> um, and, you know, he talked to a lot of children and he talked to a lot of families and teachers and, and he found that, you know, children today are much more likely to choose to want to remain inside because that's where the screens and plugs are. Mm, and, mm -hmm. and one little boy said specifically, that's where the plugs are as a reason to want to be inside. Whereas in my day, well, we had television, we had records, but the television was, there were rules. So it wasn't like I could just come home from school at three o'clock and turn on a television. I mean, there were, there were rules. And I had to budget my time to get homework done. And, and you know, there was a, an hour of TV that I could watch per day. And I had to help, you know, with dinner, cleaning up after dinner. So like those two hours from 3.30 to 5.30 were so valuable to me. And I would always want to be outside. Like I said, climbing trees or playing just in the yard, but mostly I wanted to be on my bicycle exploring the world. Mm -hmm. And now children, I think they may live in a place where that is much less possible, much less safe, at least according to perceptions, or in reality, much less safe. And their whole world is much more centered around screens mm -hmm. at increasingly younger ages. Mm -hmm. And, of course, there's many, many books written about the problem of essentially being addicted to screens, whether that's games or social media or growling or, you know, what, whatever stage of life we're at, there's plenty of highly addictive content. Yes, and I'd be remiss if I didn't mention your talk, Pen and Paper, what the research says. And we've also done some podcasts on that and the problem with screens. Uh, that's another impediment Louv unpacks. And then the third one is just regulations. Mm -hmm. There are laws and things that make it increasingly difficult to even be in nature. I remember visiting a friend who had bought a house in a fairly upscale subdivision where they had kind of planned the whole thing and put a river through and the trees nice. yep. and it was you know it was kind of in its early stages of growth but there was you know these signs don't play in the creek don't play in the river and you're thinking wait a minute i moved here so i could have this nature out my back door only the kids can't even go there because, you know, if you've got a, a little kid, boy or girl, and there's a stream, well, what are you going to do? You're going to, like, dam it up. Of You're going to play in it. You're going to float That's boats you down for, it. You're yes. going to – and I just thought we're creating a fake mm -hmm. nature in a way. I mean, it's it's real, but you can't immerse yourself in it right. that same way. Yep. And, and then uh, – 
I don't know if it was from the book or I heard this somewhere else, but this family had had constructed a treehouse for their kids, and there was this violation city zoning ordinance that didn't allow for outbuildings sure. yes. in that area, and the city came in was like forcing them to deconstruct this beautiful treehouse mm-hmm. they had created for well. You know, and I've heard equally stupid things of, you know, cities saying, no, you can't have any vegetable garden growing in your front yard, you know. And then I think the one that really got me was that the PETA group, People for the Ethical Treatment of Animals, um, was trying to pressure the Boy Scouts into eliminating the fishing merit badge Mm, mm -hmm. because fishing is mean. Even if you throw the fish back and it lives, well— it was hurt mm-hmm. by being caught in the first place, so we should never do that. And it's just, you know, it's just completely kind of eliminating all of the things, either ideologically or physically or legally or social pressure mm-hmm. of just humans being a part of nature mm-hmm. rather than we being disconnected from it. Right in this way, so that's kind of what his book, right. you know, talks about. And then in the end, he unpacks what are the solutions. Exactly. We've got three minutes, Andrew. What well, are the solutions? And, you know, the, <laughs> the short version is: don't feel as though you have to undertake something big, hmm. right? Because it's psychologically for the modern family, you know, a four-day camping trip is just overwhelmingly complex to arrange and. You have all of these expensive things you have to acquire and figuring out where to go and then worrying about, okay, you you may never do it. Right. I mean, you might, and that would be great, but it, it could be overwhelming. So, and, you know, for particularly for those of us who are homeschooling, mm-hmm. we have flex time mm-hmm. and we don't have to, you know, hide in our house from nine to three five days a week, Mm -hmm. pretending that our kids have to be in school. So why not just say, okay, no, we're just going to take the day off. Mm -hmm. You know, field trip. Right, exactly. A field trip used to be like, go to the field, I guess. I mean, (laughs) I always remember it as, you know, going to some cheese factory to view cheese making or a museum or something. But, you know, maybe we get back to the idea of, hey, let's just grab a good book and some lunch and leave the home. It's a beautiful day. We don't have any reason not to. And if we can't find true wilderness, well, let's just go to a park and get on the edge of nature mm-hmm. and run around. And, you know, he he does talk a little bit about the correlation between a lack of time in nature and physical health. Oh, sure. Particularly yes. with childhood obesity. And then there's other other things we wouldn't even think about, like visual or sensory development you know when you're inside what you're seeing what you're hearing what you're feeling on your skin is much much narrower in its variety than what you would if you were walking through a forest or sitting on the beach and so that kind of sensory enrichment you know that a lot of children just don't have the same degree so um you know i think his his book is 
worth reading if if you have time. I know that after he published that book, he started a foundation. Mm. I don't remember the exact website, but you could find it very easily. Link in the show notes. Richard Louvre, L-O-U-V, and Nature Deficit Disorder. And he started a, a foundation to promote this. Yes. We, of course, have a friend in the homeschool world, uh, Ginny Urich, who has kind of started a significant effort here called A Thousand Hours Outside. I love that. And uh, she's kind of, you know, building on all these themes in a wonderful way. Uh, I've met her personally on a few occasions, Mm -hmm. and she's one of those super, super joyful, bubbly, enthusiastic women. And, uh, you know, I think she understood this as her kids were young and starting to grow up and realized how many other families just didn't see it. Uh, so she's uh, using her 1,000 hours outside to kind of give people goals and methods I love for it. really expanding that. So we can recommend her resources wholeheartedly. Do you know most recently our family vacationed in Yosemite? And Beautiful my place. Yes, love Yosemite. And my grandson turned two. And one of the things that my son and his wife got, each of the kids while we were there in Yosemite, is one of those national park passports. And so their goal now is to spend the next dozen or so years getting stamps in their national park passports. And I just think that's such an awesome, cool goal. My problem is I keep going to the same national parks over and over again. Yosemite, Grand Canyon, Yosemite. Yosemite, Yosemite, well, Grand Canyon. <laughs> as the kids get older and yes. go a little bit farther from home, uh, you will accompany them. And who knows? Maybe you'll find yourself at the Great Sand Dunes in Colorado or <laughs> Mount Rushmore or... Right? Well, probably not the Sahara Desert, but there's a few deserts you yes. can go to. Yes. So, And then they've got to come to Oklahoma. And they do on occasion. Because we've we've got all these lakes and rivers and... Get a boat, jump off the boat into the lake. Into the lake, yep. And a three-foot fish swims right by you. It's kind of creepy. (laughs) (laughs) Very fun. Well, I love thinking about getting outdoors. It just makes me want to go outside right now because it is a beautiful fall day. It is a beautiful fall day. Thank you, Andrew. Thanks so much for joining us. If you enjoyed this episode and want to hear more, please subscribe to our podcast in iTunes, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, or Spotify. Or just visit us each week at IEW.com slash podcasts. Here you can also find show notes and relevant links from today's broadcast. One last thing. Would you mind going to iTunes to rate and review our podcast? This really helps other smart, caring listeners like you find us. Thanks so much.